You brought your Bibles with you this morning. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. The passage is printed in your bulletin, or if you'd like to look at it in those blue Bibles that are in the pew before you, it's page 1015. With the uh, section that I'm about to read for us in just a few moments, verses 1 through 7, we are coming to a conclusion, a conclusion of Peter's use of these, I, this idea of the household code, of this form of ethical instruction that Peter has adopted here. And if you've been with us for the last couple of months, and perhaps, or last couple of weeks, and, and in fact, if you haven't been, you need to at least realize the setting in which we're in. Peter has worked through how we are to live for the Lord in three particular spheres. We've looked at the state, or he's looked at the state, uh, and then labor, and now he's coming to marriage and considering that as well. These are each independent spheres, uh, but they have a lot of overlap with one another, as makes sense to us as soon as we think about uh, those things, and yet we've looked at them each in turn as Peter did. Last week we saw that all of the exhortations that he has given to us, all of the instruction that he has given to us, arise from the life of and especially from the suffering of Christ. Christ suffered for us. He suffered for us in the first place that we might be saved. And in so doing, in that salvation, in addition to saving us from our sins, Christ has also laid down a path. He's given to us an example. He left us a tablet, a tablet that has the writing of his life upon us, upon it, and we are to trace our lives, to pattern our lives according to that pattern, or, to use the other analogy that Peter used last week, we're to walk in the footprints. We're to look at the footprints of Christ. We are to pattern our lives and to walk in those footprints as well. That's how we are to live honorably in this world, before this world, for this world, and in the sight of God Almighty. Here, then, this portion of the Word of God. Likewise, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Without a word, Lord, we pray that as we look at this text this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would take the words that are here 
and you would apply them to each of our lives, each of our hearts, our marriages, our families, in accordance with what we need to hear, in accordance with the truth of your word, Spirit of God, use this in our lives today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this passage. I love it. You may find that strange. You may think me crazy, but I love it. As a pastor, I am, of course, fully aware of how arcane these words sound to our ears, or at least at a minimum, to the ears of our culture. When these words are read, when these words are said, they sound perhaps chauvinistic, misogynistic with respect to the commands that are here. I'm well aware that these words have been used and abused to justify any manner of ungodly subjugation of wives under the guise of biblical fidelity. That is sad and that is awful that they have been used in that way. I am also aware that therefore many Christians who would look at these words would in fact be apologetic with respect to these words and would want to almost apologize for the fact that they are found here in the Word of God. They might say that perhaps these instructions that Peter gives here were appropriate in the Greco-Roman world at that time long ago, but surely this is no longer applicable to us. That's not our culture and therefore we shouldn't apply these words. I get it. I get it. I am not unaware of any of this and I love this passage. Now I'm going to tell you why. I tipped you off that this was coming a few weeks ago and I'm going to tell you why. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was very young and my mother remarried my stepfather. My stepfather's name was George. He, she remarried him or she married him when I was eight years old. George took it upon himself to make me uh, tougher than I was. Uh, now, I think that was his disposition to do that, but the reason that he gave was that, in fact, I had been raised by my mother and two older sisters, nine and 11 years older than me, respectfully, uh, respectively, for a number of years. And so he thought, well, that's got to change. Something's got to change here. I've got to toughen you up a little bit. And one of the manifestations of that uh, was that at the dinner table, he would take any subject, anything that came up, he would take whatever I said and take the opposite position of that thing. Uh, and some of them were great moral issues of the day, uh, which really weren't great moral issues, but for a, whatever, middle schooler, they were the great moral issues of the day. Uh, and, and so then we would debate those. And we would sit at the dinner table, and that would be where we'd have this tete-a-tete -tete, uh, with one another. And my mother would just sit there and with her, have her hand over her head the entire time, hoping that it wouldn't break out into violence, which it never did. Uh, but it did get rather heated. And that was his strategy. Now, in high school, I became a believer in high school, and something changed in the dynamic. Here's what changed in that dynamic. What changed in that dynamic is I thought, wait, now I'm just not arguing for the sake of arguing or arguing for the sake that I think it would be fun to win whatever this silly argument is, but I have to stand up for biblical truth. 
right? I've got the truth of God now. I'm a Christian now, and so I have to win for God. God needs me to win this argument with my stepfather that is entered into for only the purpose of arguing. So that got a little bit more complex. And as I grew up, it got a little bit more intense and a little bit more heated. And then Lauren and I married, and Lauren and I had children, and it took another turn. Because it's one thing when you're in high school to do that, it's another thing in college, it's another thing when uh, you're an adult and you're married and you have children. There came a time when uh, we did, in fact, nearly come to blows. We both stood up and were ready uh, for it at that moment. It happened to be one of those times, as happens uh, on vacation, when for whatever reason things blow up sometimes when you're together as a family on vacation. Uh, and that took place. And after that, we left uh, and didn't speak to my parents for, I don't know how long it was now, less than a year, but somewhere thereabouts. And we didn't speak because we had no way to reconcile this. We had no way to get through it. There was no, it was an impasse. I could not figure out what I was supposed to do in this situation that wouldn't lead back to this same particular place, this same stand up, are you ready to go, let's tangle type of thing. One night, I'm driving with three guys. I'm in the back seat. We're driving. Uh, these are Christian brothers. We're driving to go play basketball uh, together. And I don't know why. I don't remember all of the context of it. But somehow, quickly, the relationship of, our, of ourselves to our fathers came up. And again, I don't know who brought this up. But we talked about how difficult it was. And then somebody brought up, or I brought up, I don't remember, this passage. The Spirit of God brought to mind this passage right here. And what dawned on me in that night was the parallel that exists between this passage and my situation. This is instruction to the wife of an unbelieving husband. Now, I'm not the wife of an unbelieving husband, but I was the adult child of an unbelieving stepfather, George. And what struck me is the parallel that exists here between this situation and my situation. And what I found in this text at that moment was... A biblical justification to be quiet, to not engage, to stop my mouth, to recognize, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is not going to work. And the scripture tells me, as it would tell a wives, you have got a bad strategy, you've got a bad idea going on because you're ignoring something that God has said to you, namely, honor your father and your mother. And so I wrote a letter to George and my mother, and I apologized, and I wrote with hope that once again we could restore this relationship. I knew he wouldn't change, but I now had a mechanism by which I could close my mouth with biblical justification for closing my mouth, and slowly our relationship began to heal. My mother uh, developed cancer and it grew more serious over the course of that time. Lauren and I were able, with the kids, to move back in and care for my mother in a house peaceable because of this text. My mother died. We lived, continued to live for a couple of months at least with my stepfather, uh, George, peaceably. And then for the next 10 to 15 years, we uh, had a terrific relationship with him. I wish I could tell you that at the end of that time, or after 10 years or 15 years, that George came to me and said, listen, I've seen this witness in your life. Explain it to me. Tell me the gospel of Christ and that I told it to him and he believed. I can't tell you that. 
I can tell you we had many conversations about the gospel. I can't tell you that he was ever converted in the way that we would think of conversion. But what I can tell you, sorry, I'm going to get emotional. What I can tell you is this, that we loved him and that he loved us and that we lived peaceably and joyfully together for 15 years. We didn't live together. We were in Ukraine for a good amount of that time. But the relationship is what I'm saying was healed and it was because of this text and this teaching and I love it. I love it for that reason. Today, getting into the text now, I've given, you, I've given you a picture of how do you take a text that doesn't exactly address you and put it in your lives. I want to ask two questions of the text today. What does God want from us? What does he want of us? What does he expect from us in this passage right here and why? Okay, just two very simple questions before us in uh, this text and the way I want to structure this sermon. What does God want us to do? The answer to that question is, as I've tried to show for the last several weeks, found in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. God wants us. He wants us as his people living in this fallen world, as sojourners and as exiles in this world, to conduct ourselves honorably. Honorably in every circumstance of life, in every sphere of life. And in order to explain what that honorable life looks like, Peter takes these three prominent, these three representative spheres of the state and of labor and of the home and the marriage, and he's worked out the application of the honor principle. He's got the honor principle, live honorably, and here's how I'll show you to do that in these three. There are plenty more that exist other than those three, but here's three that'll help you to see and figure out how to apply them in this world. And the key to making sense of the application that Peter is calling us to is to see that the honor principle, which is being spelled out for us here, is embodied in the suffering of Jesus Christ and it is shaped like a cross, and the cross is a shameful thing. If you want to understand biblical honor, you have to understand that biblical honor is embodied in the instrument of shame. And therefore, things get turned over. They get flipped other ways around. Thus, it's not the first who are first, it's the last who will be first in the biblical ethic. It looks different, right? It looks in this world like, well, the honorable position is the one who's first or the one who takes that seat there in particular. But instead, the biblical ethic throws that around the other direction. And it says you have to look at the cross in order to understand this particular type of honorable conduct that I'm calling you to or else you'll miss it or else you'll get it wrong or else you'll use the lens of the world to figure out honor and that's not going to work. That's a broken lens that you'd be looking for. Therefore... Some applications of honor may correspond well with what the world around us calls and thinks of as honor. And we've pointed this out along the way, where the scripture says a few verses earlier, honor everyone. Okay. Honor the emperor. Okay. That makes sense as well. Do good. Do good has been in every single one of these things, right? Well, hey, the world's all about doing that which is good. So that sinks well. 
But there's going to be other applications of honor that will appear shameful to the world just like the cross appears shameful to the world. And we've got to be aware of that. We've got to be aware that we can't sync exactly with this world. There are times when we can and times when we can't. And so in this passage, especially in our day, the honor would seem to be shameful, certainly to our culture at large. And we cannot assume that we, as the people of God who happen to live in this culture, are not impacted by that, are not affected by that. Specifically then, this text begins by, as I've said, addressing wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. That's the ones who, so that even if some do not obey the word. It's not condoning this. This is a situation where probably the wife has become a believer. The husband didn't become a believer. And the question is, okay, well, what do I do now? How now do I act in that situation? Now, just so you realize this, it starts off with that presupposition, the wife of an unbelieving husband, but it quickly goes on to what we might call general counsel, counsel that applies across the board to wives and then to husbands as well in believing marriages also. You can tell that by the fact that this instruction is almost repeated in other places in scripture as well. And for example, as you come to the end of this passage, uh, in order to articulate an example, we draw on Sarah and Abraham, and of course Abraham wasn't an unbeliever, he was the opposite of an unbeliever, but that can be applied to this situation as well. So anyway, it begins uh, with this addressing uh, an unbelieving husband and the wife who is in that relationship, and the instruction begins as every other sphere began, be subject. The reason for this is not that subjection is the defining characteristic of marriage. It better not be the defining characteristic of marriage. But instead, it is this. It's this idea that there exists within the human heart in general, and still even within the Christian heart, this temptation to rebelliousness and this temptation to superiority. And we didn't read Genesis 3 this morning, but you can see that very thing in the very first temptation to humanity. But think for a moment about the temptation to superiority. How easy would it be for the believing wife to despise the foolishness of her husband? To look down on him, because he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand the word. He doesn't, he doesn't understand that we should serve God. He doesn't understand that we should go to worship and be with the people of God. How easy would it be to look down upon that person and to feel superior to that person? And this is, was exactly my sin with George. I assumed the superiority of the truth and tried to win him with argument. When he was, in God's design, my superior. I took the role. I'm the Christian. I know the truth. I took the role of superior when God had structured it otherwise. Please understand this correctly. Peter has elevated every person in every one 
of these spheres. I've articulated it along the way. Here's the quick summary. In that first one, honor everyone, honor the emperor. Listen, as soon as you say that, you've said something really dramatic because you just put instruction with respect to how you treat the emperor on the exact level of everyone. So you've done two things at the same time. You've lifted everyone up and you brought the emperor down a notch or two from his divine otherwise status. In the next section, we talked about this. Peter addresses slaves as moral agents. To even have done that in the household code is a statement in and of itself. But he goes further by saying to them, you are called. You're not just stuck in this situation. You didn't just get born into this awful situation. You're called to be in this particular situation. You've got a mission from God to which you have been called. That elevates them. Yeah, okay. This is a tough hand that I've been dealt. But now my status is raised up. And the same thing is true in this section as well. Gloriously written for us in verse 7. It says, Since they are, that is, wives, heirs with you of the grace of life. Don't make the mistake. Don't look down. Don't look down. They're heirs with you of the grace of life. What else could there be? What higher status is there than co-heirs, joint heirs of the grace of life? In other words, Peter's commands to subjection come in the context of elevating the fundamental equality and personhood that we have before God. I know that that is hard to hear. I know that that is hard to appreciate because the words themselves seem to us to be so loaded that we can barely hear that statement. And yet that's what he has done. What he is saying, however, is that with this elevation of personhood is not an elimination of structure within the spheres. And therefore, the call to wives is to be subject, or in verse 5, submitting to their own husbands, or in verse 6, as Sarah obeyed Abraham. One more time, last time I'm going to say it, this is not absolute. Right? This is not an absolute subjection. You cannot be commanded to do that which is forbidden by the word of God. You do not have to submit to that command. So it's not absolute. Nevertheless, it is the disposition. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. No ha-has. No smiley face. No wink placed after it. Just an example. Just an example of a woman who, in difficult circumstances, called her husband Lord. We may be tempted in our lives to think that we can get our way by arguing, by badgering, <laughs> by saying, listen, if you'll just listen to me, I'm going to explain this, and if you just understand what I'm saying, then you'll agree with me, because I'll explain it to you, and then you'll agree with me. This is the truth. This is what we should do. It's a doomed strategy. A doomed strategy because of the structure that God has established. And so Peter counsels another way. It is the way of honorable conduct. Not servile, not servile, honorable conduct. He begins to explain it. 
verse 2, when they see, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. I need to pause on the respectful part of that here for just a moment. The respectful reference is probably a reference to God. It's actually the word fear. When they see that you fear the Lord. It's in context of a fear of the Lord that Peter is speaking and writing here. That's what he said to everybody. That's what you've got to have. Fear the Lord. And so when they see, and this would have been the expectation of the household code, that wives would follow the religion of their husbands. That would have been the instruction. You have your husband's friends, you follow your husband's religion. But the respectful part of it is with respect to the fear of the Lord, you act in a certain way. And you exhibit then, in fear of the Lord, pure conduct. And this is here a broad idea. It's not just a sexual idea. Uh, We'll call it appropriate conduct. And then verses 3 through 5 expand this with the analogy of adornment. In verse 3, you look at this uh, inappropriate adornment. adornment. And Peter does three areas here. Uh, He does the hair, he does the jewelry, and he does the clothing. Now what Peter is saying here, and I'm just going to say this in a nutshell so that we don't get uh, bogged down on this. He's saying don't go over the top. Okay? Don't be excessive is what is being commanded here. Avoid immodesty. Avoid being ostentatious. How many times has this argument taken place in your house? I can wear what I want to wear. The, the Lord looks on the heart, right? That's on the front of your bulletin, First Samuel 16, 7. The Lord doesn't look on the outward appearance. That's shallow of people to look on the outward appearance. It's shallow of people to judge me for what I am wearing. I want to wear what I want to wear when I want to wear it. You can't tell me what to wear. Peter says you need to check that impulse. You need to check it. He's not advocating here... I, Please understand, he's not advocating here, advocating here, being drab, okay? And he's, he, he's not saying you can't ever wear some gold jewelry um, and you can't ever braid your hair. He's looking at things and saying there's a way that you can do those things that in every culture is over the top and isn't always over the top. Okay, if he were advocating don't braid your hair at all, he would also be advocating not wearing any clothes. So he's not doing that, all right? He's just saying don't be excessive with these things. He's urging thoughtfulness. And he moves on in verse 4 to internal beauty. So he looked at the external side in 3, he moves on to internal beauty. And this helps us to see this move from the external to the internal, that Peter is urging, and what he's urging is not just an act. He doesn't want this to be just a show, just an outward thing, just some kind of facade that you do, that you show in what you wear. Instead, the Bible recognizes how honor should arise up out of the heart and how easy it is to put on a display of that but actually not have it in your heart. Here's the verse. Uh, Here's the phrase that goes throughout Scripture. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. And what Peter is saying is, I don't want any of this just external honoring going on. I don't want you just, you know, smiling and saying nice and saying in your heart, this person's a jerk and I don't want to listen to anything that they say. And as soon as I walk the other direction or as soon as they walk the other direction, I'll do what I'm going to do. Instead, he says, 
and he turns inward. And he turns inward to the heart as he does so with the idea that this internal adornment will express itself externally in pure conduct, which in fact will be attractive. And thus he speaks of adorning the heart with imperishable beauty, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty. I wanted to call this sermon imperishable beauty, but I thought without a word actually captures the heart of this passage better than imperishable beauty. But that's such a great phrase, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Now, we've got to say something right away. Peter is obviously addressing the wives of unbelieving husbands. He's addressing wives. Gentle and quiet are not feminine characteristics. Not in scripture, anyway. Uh, so, Jesus is gentle, right? That's, that's how Jesus describes himself. Half of you in the room have read or are reading the book of that title based on the words of Jesus' self-description of himself. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. I'm humble and I'm meek. And so that is a word that Jesus applies to himself. So we need to see it in that way. It's not rough. It's not harsh. It's not severe. It's tender. It's meek. And quiet uh, can have the aspect of actually being a quieter, but it's more of tranquility. It's more of uh, composure and of steadfastness and, and of steadiness and of calmness that is there. Gentle and quiet, calm. These are the dispositions that flow from two things. They flow from fearing God and from hoping in God. Fearing God, we've already addressed with the respect, and hoping in God is what is said in verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. If you want to put on gentleness and quietness, they come from two places, fearing God. Charm is deceptive and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, give her her praise. Give her her praise. And then hoping in God as well. And he concludes, Peter, his instruction to wives, saying, do good and don't be afraid of anything that is frightening. Because subjection can be scary. Don't be afraid. I already preached on that passage in the new year. But one comment on the call to do good here, and I hope you've caught this. If you haven't, you're going to catch it right now. The call for the wives to do that which is good is what wives should do, and it's what we, the bride of Christ, should do. Right? That's what was written in the call to worship in Revelation chapter 19. It was granted to her, her here being us, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You want to know how to cross-apply the word of God? That's how you do it. Yes, this is written to a particular situation. And then, yes, we are the bride of Christ, clothing ourselves by doing that which is good. Peter then turns to husbands lest the God-given authority be misunderstood, misapplied, or, or abused, Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Appreciate her image-bearing, her beauty, the calling. And then there's a clear command here and a warning in this. 
as the weaker vessel. Now I know that rankles as well. Peter is simply making a general statement here as the weaker vessel, and it doesn't apply all the time. We all know that as the vessel who is not generally as strong as the other vessel. And one other thing as well is being said here, as a woman in particularly that culture, the one who is more vulnerable, the one who was culturally there more vulnerable, the woman. So as that weaker vessel, men, you better not abuse that. You better not abuse that. Instead, you better show honor. You better handle with appropriate care the wife that God has given to you. That's the instruction to us. That is what God wants from us. It remains to ask, why? Why does he want that? I'm going to give you four reasons. I'll do it quicker than I just did with what. In verse 4 of the passage. Why should we behave like this? Why should we conduct ourselves like this? Because in God's sight, it is very precious. Verse 4, but let your adorning be the inner person, uh, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. If no one sees it, if no one gets it, if your husband never asks you to give a reason for the hope that's found within you that allows you to act and behave in this way, in, with such honorable conduct, if none of your friends ever sees it, if no one appreciates the struggle, God does. You are living quorum Deo. You are living before the very presence of God, and what you do in secret is not hidden from your Father who sees what takes place in secret and will reward you and is able to reward you for it. It is precious in the sight of God. If there were no other reason given, that's enough. It's precious in the sight of God. But there's a second why. The second why, I'll start by quoting Paul. Paul in Romans 12 instructs this way. He says, insofar as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then as, then as he moves on in Romans, he commands believers to pursue what makes for peace. Peter's instruction here in 1 Peter chapter 3 in verses 1 through 7, this instruction in all of these spheres is in fact peacemaking instruction. It flows from a peacemaking spirit. These things that he has said promote, they foster, and they allow the possibility of peace and order and love, and that's what I experienced with it. That's what I experienced with it with George. It allowed peace and love to flourish where before there had been contention. It took swallowing. It took having my kids look at me and go, aren't you going to disabuse him of that notion that he just said? It, it, it took... It took being humble in front of my kids to say, no, no, we're letting that go. Love is going to overlook that offense. That's not my place to do it. And peace and love 
flourished in its place. I started off uh, this, this, uh, this whole idea of these spheres by talking about basketball, right? And we talked about high school basketball as a sphere. If you want to just take this as, take it out of all these complicated ones, let's just put it in the sphere of a high school basketball game. Let's say you're in a high school basketball game and no one in the sphere is willing to be subject to anyone else. So the players aren't willing to be subject to the coach, the point guard's not willing to be subject to anybody else on the team, and neither the coach nor the players are willing to be subject to the referees. Nobody's subject to anybody in the high school basketball game. How long do you think the game would last? How long? Maybe a minute? Maybe. Before utter chaos would descend and you would not be able to play. These instructions, if you just take them and put them into that setting, the principles at least, not the every part of it of course, help us to see what's going on here. It's precious in God's sight. It is a peacemaking spirit because it is both those, by the way, that allows for prayer to take place. If you're doing these things, that's then why your prayers wouldn't be hindered. You'd be able to pray. And it'd be precious to the Lord. Third reason why. To win them without a word. Why? Why should I behave like this? To win them without a word. We have a mission to the world. We have a mission to the world that begins not just out somewhere far away. It begins right in the home. And the mission that we have in the home that then bleeds out unto the world is the mission to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we will be in situations where we won't have the opportunity, we won't have the context, we won't have the ability to use our words, at least initially, to communicate that gospel. What do you do then? What do you do then? What is your strategy? The strategy is honor them. If you don't have the authority in that particular relationship, if you can't continue in that particular relationship to speak, because this is a neighbor that you've known for 25 years and you've already tried, to talk a million times, honor them. Honor them. We don't know in the providence of God whether that will bear some significant fruit, some great question that will come to you. We'll talk about it in a little bit more in 1 Peter 3. But we've got the call. Honor them. The classic example of this text in church history is Augustine's mother. Augustine's mother was Monica. She was a believer. Her husband, Patricus, was not Augustine's mother and father. He writes this in Confessions. When she reached Monica, a marriageable age, she was given to a man and served him as her lord. She tried to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her virtues, through which you made her beautiful, so that her husband loved, respected, and admired her. And then it continues on to another aspect of Monica, another great gift which you, with which you endowed that servant of yours in whose womb you created me, my God, my mercy, was that whenever she could, she reconciled dissident and quarreling people. She showed herself so great a peacemaker, and then he goes on to describe that a bit. That was the kind of person she was because she was taught by you as her inward teacher in the school of her heart. At the end, when her husband, Augustine's father, 
had reached the end of his life in time, she succeeded in gaining him for you. After he was a baptized believer, she had no cause to complain of behavior which she had tolerated in one not yet a believer. To win them for Christ. Without being idealistic here, we are seeking to beautify, to beautify our lives, to beautify our homes, to beautify our marriage because this is precious to God, because it makes for peace, and because the world is watching, the world is looking at us to see, to smell the aroma of Christ. It's like God's natural revelation, his general revelation that exists in this world. These are the first two hymns that we sung in this service today. God's general revelation in this world is the beauty of the snow and the regularity of the seasons and the fact that it produces rain and sun and produces fruit and things for us to eat and drink which are delightful. That's God's testimony out into the world. It in and of itself is not enough to save a person. But it's enough, perhaps, to peek, to get into the heart so that the person can consider whether or not there's a God and can perhaps hear of this God who has provided these things. This is the same analogy here. It's the same analogy in your lives, in your homes, as they are beautiful. You may get a question that comes out of that. And you may win them to Christ. Fourth and final why. Why is the first word of the passage. It's the first word of verse 7. Likewise. Why? Likewise. What's the antecedent here? Like what? Likewise. Like what? Like Jesus? Like what just preceded this section? Like Jesus, wives. Like Jesus, Husbands, after the pattern of according to the example of following in the footsteps of Jesus who didn't revile back when he was reviled, who when he suffered didn't turn and lash back at somebody who, for whom no deceit was found in his mouth like Jesus following those steps. Why do we do those, these things? Because in doing these things we are being like Jesus. Like Jesus. And that is a good thing. It's an honorable thing. It's a gracious thing. It's a precious thing. And so I acknowledge the passage has been subject to abuse and been used to justify that which is dishonorable. That is shameful. That is shameful. It's been used to suppress. But it is, in fact, about courage. It is about honor, about steadfastness, and hope, and dignity, and imperishable beauty. I've got to close and I'm never going to get out. So I started with a personal story. But it's closer than that. Because I've watched it now 
in a woman for well more than 34 years. I've watched it. I've seen it. And I love it. Daughter of Sarah, I praise you in the gates. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, thank you for your mercy towards us. Thank you for your love towards us. Thank you for the way that you've lifted us up, taken us out of the ash heap, given us a seat with princes and princesses. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to honor you as Lord and to honor one another in the stations that you've given to us in this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.